Welcome to Conversations with Mother Earth, brought to you by Grounded Press. My name is Dana Petrovic, and each week my guests and I explore one aspect of Mother Earth and the gifts that she gives us. We also discuss why these gifts are so precious and why we should value them. You got your curious? Good. We love curiosity. Today, dear listeners, I have a few warm-up questions for you to start this episode of Conversations with Mother Earth. The first question is, do you like rain? Chances are most of you would answer by saying no. In contrast, if I asked you, do you like sunny days? Most of you would immediately answer with, yes, of course. My final question is, do you like to drink water? Again, I presume that would you again say yes. The intent of these questions is to introduce today's topic of rain. Without rain, we obviously would not have any water to drink nor any fruit juice, because fruits, fruits are from plants that need water to survive, nor would you and I be alive. We all know that rain is an invaluable source of life. However, too much rain can, call, can be destructive. And with recent floods in in Germany, in Canada, in China, in Mozambique, and other places so in around the world that you probably read about, we know about the power of rain. My guest speaker today is Thomas Huggins, who is a leading researcher in what is called cascading disasters. These disasters happen when one initial catastrophic event, such as a flood from too much rain, triggers a series of follow-up disasters. The intent of his research is to learn how we can eliminate these follow-up cascading disasters. Thomas is from New Zealand, and his current position is Assistant Professor, Division of Sciences and Technology, Beijing Normal University, Hong Kong Baptist University, United International College in Zhuhai, China. Thomas, a very warm welcome to Conversations with Mother Earth. Thank you very much. It's a, it is a real pleasure to, to be able to contribute to this very fine show. Um, I've really enjoyed listening to the, to the podcast and it's, it's great to be invited along. Thank you. Thomas, um, I have to start with a confession. <laughs> and the question, it is actually, if you ask me if I like rain, I would say I love rain. I love the sound of it. I love the smell of earth after it has rained. I love even sometimes to feel it on my face. Not all the time, but sometimes when you, when you have time and you don't mind getting wet, I really feel, feel it. I love the feel of it. So 
as you are the a researcher researching rain and other disasters, uh, a question for you. Um, how would you answer that question? Yeah, I, I think uh, to, to say whether or not I, I really enjoy the rain, uh, whether or not I, I like the rain, what do I think about the rain? Um, you know, there, there's been many, many a time when, when I've looked out a, a window at a, at a scenery with, with nice soft rain and no wind. Um, and, and, you know, I've, and I've heard someone in my family, for example, call it a, a soft day, a nice soft day. Um, and, and, you know, it's, it's really, it's pleasant to look at. And, and of course I enjoy that. Um, of course I enjoy the way uh, many, many things look and smell after the rain. Um, but to be honest, you know, it, it really depends on the rain. And uh, growing up in, in Wellington in New Zealand, we, we often have gale winds um, of up around 80 kilometers per hour, gale force winds. And uh, even when it doesn't get that fast, the rain quickly goes sideways. Yes. <laughs> well, it's, it's not exactly horizontal, but it, it, it sure as heck feels like it when you're in the middle of that. Um, and it's very cold rain, um, and it's quite hard to keep yourself dry and keep yourself warm in those conditions. So uh, it would be fair to say that I, I have a love-hate relationship with rain. That's interesting. We have friends from Iceland who actually said something similar. That's no point of having an umbrella. What for? We, we did not grow up because it doesn't help you really. <laughs> oh, absolutely. People open on an umbrella in, in Wellington City and everyone just sort of stands around and watches because they know exactly what's going to happen. It's going to be... <laughs> Within, within a split second, a, a, an inside-out umbrella may be broken forever. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You probably recognize tourists immediately, but by those who open the umbrella are visitors. Yeah, absolutely. That, that and the people who every once in a while, they, they're um, clasping a, a, a lamppost for their dear life, you know, uh, trying not to be blown away. Um, definitely seen that before as well. <laughs> yeah, that's that's interesting what you mentioned because this is aligned with my next question: how how people in different countries presume rain. So I assume that rain is not really something positive for for people you know in New Zealand or especially in Wellington. Well, yeah, I, I suppose that's the thing that uh, New Zealand has a, a a surprisingly varied geography. Um, so Wellington is an exceptionally windy place, which makes the rain particularly difficult. Um, the wind and the rain often arrive together, and that's not necessarily a nice, a nice thing. Um, however, you know, I, I wouldn't want to speak for the whole of, of New Zealand, and um, and you know, and and I should say that, of course, New Zealand is New Zealand's economy depends so much on on agriculture. Um, and although we've got a population of around five million people, I think at the last estimate we were producing food for close to forty million people. Um, so. You know, we really, really depend on, on rain for that agricultural uh, output, um, especially for things like you, you mentioned fruit. Um, we definitely need it for fruit. We need it for livestock, vegetables, um, grains. We need it for many, many, many different aspects of our agricultural economy, the agricultural part of our primary economy. Yes. So, yes. Um, yeah, so I mean, a lot of New Zealanders, especially if they're outside of Wellington, it would be fair to say that they they would quite enjoy the rain if it isn't flooding. Um, but, uh, and, and, you know, quite a few of us growing up, we, we would have even had um, games of, of muddy, muddy rugby during the winter 
um, <laughs> where we're, we're sliding around in the, in the, in the, on the grass playing a sport, you know, and it's, uh, that's a lot of fun too. So, um, yeah, I, I wouldn't like to say that, that New Zealanders um, have a particularly negative relationship with, with rain. There's, we're very much dependent on it. That's <laughs> funny. Yeah, we, we slid down. We didn't slide on, on, on muddy ground. We slid on snow, but there we, we always find a way how to slide down the slope, don't we, or in a, on a playground. Oh, yeah. Oh, there's, no, there's nothing quite like it. It's, it's amazing, you know, um, being able to, you, you sort of, you have the rugby ball and the line, you have to cross the line that's over there. And there's a certain point where you can just dive with momentum and the mud will just carry you over the line. Um, Maybe that's why you're world champions in rugby. For training in mud, um, maybe. <laughs> Nobody can beat you. <laughs> yeah, well, at, at the moment, actually, quite quite a few teams can beat us, unfortunately. So um, maybe we just need to play in rainier conditions. Yes, exactly, exactly. <laughs> back to back to your work. Um, we read a lot about the climate change and uh, how the weather events have become more extreme and are getting worse. So you research this, um, you, you are facing this every day in your work. What are your thoughts about climate change and extreme events? Well, I think my research really needs to bear this in mind. It's a, it's a very important context for my research, which is mostly in psychological aspects of, of, um, of managing uh, natural hazards, heavy rain being one of them. Um, and, you know, th- this is a really, really important context, and it's part of the challenge for decisions made to, to, to manage the manage hazards um, is that under the conditions of climate change, uh, sometimes it's more obvious than not. Um, it's particularly obvious immediately following a big flooding event, for example. Um, but generally there's, a, there's been a trend towards uh, places of the world that are dry, getting drier, um, yes. including the extent of desertification um, and, and places that are wet getting even wetter, um, yeah. you know, having, having more intense rainfall, more sustained rainfall, and even bigger and more destructive storm events. Um, yes. so, so climate change definitely makes uh, rain harder to deal with, um, both, both in excess of rain and the insufficiency of rain. Um, I think another thing um, which is maybe a little bit more complicated and which makes the decision-making even more uh, difficult is that one thing that's happening with climate change is, of course, that sea levels are rising. And, and we know that, but a lot of people won't often think about sea level rise um, and, its, and its connection to hazards. Um, but if, for example, you, you have a part of a city that's close to the sea, um, and there's this thing called storm surge. Some people call it like a, like a green wave. or um, it's, It can look similar to a tsunami, but it's just because there's, a, there's an offshore storm that coincides with high tide and big wave movements. And those waves, instead of going to this level, they end up at this level uh, because mm-hmm. of the heavy, heavy rain. And we end up with this thing called storm surge, which is a really big thing in the south of China. Um, and, and that can be tremendously destructive and more and more so with rising sea level because yes. it's coming from closer, closer up. Not only that, but flooding becomes a lot more severe because the water table is up higher. Water only flows down to where water is not. So if that water table even beneath the ground is up higher, we can't actually absorb so much water. We can't, the water is not being carried so far down. 
Exactly. Um, so there, there, there are a lot of problems for, for flooding as well. Um, and, and many other things, actually, uh, because we also we, we get different kind of erosion dynamics um, and, and many, uh, many difficult things happening uh, just because of relatively fundamental aspects of, of climate change, I have to say. Yeah, yeah, you're addressing. We talk in a few weeks from now, we talk about sculptures and sculpting and, and all that. And actually, Mother Earth is the, the greatest sculptor. I mean, the, the way it's sculpted the canyons and the paths for the rivers to, to flow into the ocean are extremely are extraordinary. Uh, they're so perfect. But with us getting in there, we are actually interfering in a natural flow. Of uh, of water, yes, that's, that's we are not even normal. We don't even have that in discussion. I mean, in my research, we talk a lot about climate change, but we even don't discuss these things. Mm. So that's a very good point. Yeah, and 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 floodplains be floodplains. Like a lot of the time, where water has flowed to, the water will still flood there. Um, so you know, we we can pretend that we're evading that, and it might look really good even for a hundred years, but then. The next big flood comes, and then people will remember that they uh, that we're built in the middle of a floodplain. Um, exactly. And to, to, you know, to, to be fair, sometimes that the flood modelling is done well after the sediment's been built. Um, but the question is, can we learn from that, and what kind of decisions need to be made at what level um, to make sure that that we avoid this? Yes, exactly. Um, we we're mentioning that this exactly we ignored. We actually have so much old knowledge there out there that tells us this is a floodplain, this is where Mother Earth will breathe in and breathe, breathe out again. Um, but um, yeah, when it comes to later, as we saw in uh, different parts of the world, then we are screaming and we then have cascading events. Tell us, tell my listeners a little bit about these cascading events. Give us maybe an example or two. Yeah, so I, I think, um... I think I've got a, I've got a little graphic here that, that if you can I share my screen for a moment? Is that right? Oh, yes, of course. Yeah. Um, let me just see if I can bring this up here. Um, one, of the, one of the big problems that we've got is that it's, um, even when we look at, at case studies where, where cascading events have been really, really well documented, even if we just restrict um, ourselves to that, um, across history, even like really well peer-reviewed case studies with a lot of details, with named mechanisms um, that, that, that people will agree on, um, we end up with a lot of ways in which initial like heavy rain, for example, in a storm, can flow on and cause multiple uh, other kind of hazard events and things that will escalate sometimes into being a disaster, which is not just an emergency, Something's really overcome our, our ability to, to handle that. Um, so this this diagram was was built based on a on a look at I, I think over one thousand three hundred case studies. Not all of them were, were included in the end um, of cascading type disasters. And what we found was that was that sadly there um, there are just too many linkages which which are, which could happen at any time. What it means, for example, even a, even a storm event can trigger so many different things, um, which can extend to to uh, infrastructure failure directly, or it can go through another type of event such as flooding, storm surge, ground collapse, or landslide, and then leading to um to infrastructure failure. Um, so what this means is that that we, for any particular episode of heavy rain, 
um, a lot of things can happen as a, as a consequence, mm-hmm. a lot of things. And they're not, uh, they're not necessarily pleasurable things. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And you have also agriculture there, of course, when, when we have a flooding of a, of a huge agricultural land like this in British Columbia, that yes. affect the, the food prices as well. This is another... Absolutely. Yeah, we're, we're, it's where it says agriculture, you're exactly right. This is, this is referring to destruction. Of, of agriculture, deeming it unserviceable. So it's lost crops um, and sometimes just, just the loss of the function of, of agricultural land. It's um, yes. not, not serviceable. Yeah. Yeah. That's um, indeed. And yeah, uh, here is uh, my next question is a little bit is about our mistakes we make we humans make uh, and contribute to these disasters. Some of them, of course, are deforestation, but also one that is kind of a double-edged uh, sword is um, building dams. I mean, I teach the circular economy um, to my students and the mm. renewable energy is not part of the future of the circular economy, but it also has a price of building dams and flooding certain areas. So how do we contribute with our, with our activities to these cascading disasters? Yeah, well, that, that's a that's a great question. I think dams are um, dams are a difficult one. I think to be yes. to be frank, as uh, coming from New Zealand, it's it's difficult for me to to speak about dams because uh, hydroelectric power has been such a big um, boost to, to to the renewable percentage of our of our electricity generation. So we're we're well over eighty percent renewables um, in our in our electricity generation. Now in New Zealand, and a lot of that's been because of been because of dams. However, you know, as as uh, you've highlighted, there there are there are different dams built at different times in different ways. Um, and I think some of the some of the restrictions around making new dams in New Zealand are are very much restrictive. And I think um, even the ones that have been constructed, in in general, I think they were constructed at a, at a time and in a place where the um, environmental negative environmental impacts were able to be minimized um, or, or mitigated uh, I know that that's not the case for the whole world and I know that even when a good job is done um, I know it's difficult I know it's difficult um, yes yes yeah yes. And, 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 and complex not least of all because of as you say that the benefits of um, of hydroelectric power for for yeah. circular economies um, I think in terms of the, the things that we do um, that make cascading disasters a lot worse, I think that something that, that for me is more clearly, I wouldn't go to the point of saying it's insidious, but it's not, um, it's not nice. Deforestation. I think deforestation is a, is a kind of human error that, 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 is, um, that is happening uh, we, we get on a certain trajectory and uh, some countries get on a trajectory and deforestation is part of that. So, you know, we get dam building, we get deforestation, uh, we get these other things. And I think deforestation is, is particularly problematic um, because you can imagine, for example, a, a hill slope with or without trees. You can imagine once we take the trees off that slope, a lot of things are going to happen um, is that we don't have uh, the, the structure of the, the tree roots in the same way holding the slope together. And actually, it's not even holding on a particular um, soil structure. And that soil structure is so important for, for preventing flooding and, and landslide. 
because I mean it's it's going to it's going to slow down runoff. It's going to absorb a certain amount of the water, and we just don't have this kind of ecosystem service anymore, um, mm-hmm. just by virtue of stripping stripping the trees off. Um, yeah. And as you know, once once they're gone in some parts of the world, it's just going to take so long to bring them back. Um, yes. Or once that land is converted to to another use, um, those trees might never come back, not not in the foreseeable future. Um, so I do think, yeah, deforestation uh, probably for me more more than more than dam building is is a is a, um, a a kind of a trajectory that that is uh, very um, is problematic. Yes, and there is one more element with forest. Forest is also, you know, when when it rains, all that evaporates. You know, forest. We have all this, um, the humidity evaporates, of course, and which is coming back as new as next rain. So we have a cycle. It's not that we just have the rain coming down and absorbed by, by the the soil. We have a cycle of of uh, of humidity of uh, ra- rising up. And of course, coming back to us without without forest, without trees, we don't have this. That um, that part is also disrupted. There is still some, but it's disrupted. Well, and and, and the carbon cycle, of course. I mean, forests are just a huge part of the carbon fire, uh, cycle. Exactly. So, exactly. so yeah, deforestation just yeah can can cause so many problems, and and I think that's the difficulty because on on paper. The benefits of developing a particular piece of land and taking the forest away or even turning it into farmland, it might look incredibly good um, and even into the medium term or longer term. But the the cascading event that, that could lead to a landslide um, might be something that, that isn't going to happen for 60 years. Oh, exactly. Um, so the, there's a real difficulty um, about this kind of long-term planning and, and realising how bad deforestation looks as part of the long-term um, and really trying to get that onto the page alongside some of our shorter-term criteria. After the flooding in Germany, there was, of course, a lot of discussion about why it happened and how it happened, because it, it, it was incredible. In the destructive force was so strong, it stunned people. It stunned so many people along the Rhine River. And I lived, we lived along the Rhine River in the past, we love that river. And some discussion went also to talk about agriculture, how the use of agriculture, how the soil became so dense and so heavy, it cannot absorb the rain. So the rain, when the rain is coming down uh, fast and hard, yeah. it slides off and cannot be, um, cannot it's be just, absorbed. It's just like a slide. It's just exactly. running right down. Exactly. So, of course, the question raise, uh, arises uh, this year after all this flooding, how can we work with Mother Earth instead of always, uh, sometimes have a feeling against her? How can we learn? What we, I mean, how can we react with what we know about the ecosystem and work with her? Yeah, I think there are, I think there are different ways to, to look at this. And I think definitely this, I like this, the way that you put it about working with Mother Earth. Um, I think the width is an important thing because I think that often we, um, I think, and when I say we, I think a lot of humans, we forget that we're part of ecosystems. Exactly. Uh, we forget that we're part of the environment and we forget about how much environments do for us. I mean, for most humans around the world, if they're living in a part or they have lived in a part of the world that, that experiences heavy rain, um, if they were to take a close look, they would have seen actually how the environment maybe even saved their life. Um, because 
heavy rain in a lot of environments hasn't been a problem because of um, the, the way that the, the environment's set up. There's certain drainage, um, there's certain capacity to absorb the water, um, there, there's certain elevations that the environment has provided that just means that it's not as much of a hazard. Um, and it's just, it's too easy to forget that because, because it's quite hard to imagine ourselves as part of an even bigger system. I mean, there's a system, there's a, there's a tendency to atomize and think, well, each person is a unit and therefore, and even when we model these things, a lot of people will go to a certain level of agent-based modeling and they might even look at individual agents. And it's, and it's really, really hard even to understand that level, let alone looking at the next level and the next level and the next level. And the level at which we are part of an ecosystem is really big and it includes so many different dynamics um, at and between scales that, you know, of course that's really, really difficult if, if we want to be very analytical about it. Um, so, I mean, while it's very worthwhile, I think that we, I think sometimes it's just worth nodding our head and, and admitting how difficult it is. Um, and if we take it on, we need to take it on as a challenge, not just take it on as something that we just think, why don't people do it actually? Um, you know, sometimes I think it's worth pausing and saying there might be really good reasons why people haven't done this. Um, and, and we need to keep taking it on as a challenge to think of ourselves as part of, of, of an environment. Yeah, it's a, it's a very good point. And what you said, also, we have to start thinking in long term. We start also to think, I mean, the, the planet is what, 13.8 billion of, no, 3.8 billion years old. How, how many billions is it? Well, um, I, wouldn't put a, I wouldn't put a decimal place on it. I'm just not sure enough. And I think, I think that's one of the things. Sometimes, sometimes we've just got to be honest about, about what we know and what we don't know. And, and one of the problems with, with sort of ur- urban landscapes or any developed landscape is that a lot of the time we don't know enough about it. The questions that we ask about that landscape are essential. The things that we say we don't know that and the things that we could find out, for example, like finding out about the floodplain under certain uh, climatic conditions is really important. But if we don't ask the question, we don't know. And then we can't plan to to suit that, to be effectively part of Mother Nature. Yes, yes. But how can we, I mean, I know we have to research and we have to prepare and we have to think long term because we might be causing today uh, setting up a fundament for a cascading event, as you said, 60 years from now, and we might not be, we probably won't be around you and I, and yet, um, you know, the next generation has to deal with something with what we did. So how can we do that? And at the same time, keep a positive view of rain, because it's, as, as I said at the beginning, there is no life without rain. So how can we balance these two things? Yeah, I think there are two aspects to that. I think that, you know, I hope that neither you or I will get to live through a, a generally cascading disaster where it's something that just exceeds all of our capacities to, to possibly respond to that. Um, but at the same time, we're probably going to live through uh, several cascading emergencies. So we're going to live through quite a few things at a lower scale. Um, and I think that that gives us good practice and it lets us imagine and feel some of the linkages. It makes it more real. It creates more public demand for, for dealing with it um, and especially mitigating some of the problems, strengthening uh, infrastructure, moving some other infrastructure. Um, we've definitely seen after tsunamis, this becomes a big thing. Um, yes. After uh, you know tsunamis in Japan and Chile, for example, uh, yeah. the, 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 the transformative approach, the, the approach to infrastructure became transformative. 
because there was just so much demand for it. I think one of the challenges is making sure we look at the emergency events, not waiting for a disaster. You know, we look at some of the things that we might consider to be every day, like, oh, there's a storm and we had a momentary power outage. You know, isn't that interesting? Um, And seeing what we can do about that. And I think um, on the other side, being optimistic about it, it's really important to realize all the amazing work that's being done around the world. Um, there's there's phenomenal analysis being done. There are, there are incredible collaborative approaches to this. Um, the the networks that are able to to pull off some of the hazard analysis around the world are huge, or just just the way that people contribute to it. Um, a lot of even some of the the analytical tools are are low cost or no cost. Um, there are GIS solutions that people are providing free to some settings. Um, and, and uh, you know, I, I really admire that. I love it. I, I get these good news stories all the time about amazing collaborations being done across national borders, et cetera. Um, and it's really cool to see that being done before a disaster, not waiting until there's a disaster and then we have to send in rescue teams from all these countries. And it is really being done. It's, I mean, it's amazing. It, I, couldn't, I couldn't possibly provide a summary of that, but I... I um, but it's, there is so much good work being done and it is having a transformative effect on urban planning. Um, and so I think there is reason to be an optim- optimistic. Um, I just hope that that starts to catch up with this kind of residual risk situation that we've, we've been facing is that, is that the extent um, and, the, and the frequency of hazards, well, the, the impacts and, and frequency of hazards, our exposure to them, our vulnerability has been, has been, are mounting up in many parts of the world. It's it's not it's not slowing down for many reasons. It's not slowing down because of climate change, uh, patterns in urban planning, ecosystem degradation, um, and you know, the, the just um, multiple interdependencies um, because of these things. You know, we we're starting to see, or at least we're becoming more aware of, of quite uh, severe um, weather-related incidents. And, and that, that is outstripping our capacity to, to really deal with them. Um, but, you know, I, I think there are signs that, that, that we're starting to catch up. And one of the ways that we're catching up is that we're not necessarily just believing that we can mitigate everything. We know that there is some residual risk. And I think that that's, that's the importance of this kind of multiple pronged approach to emergency management around the world. People are trying to, to reduce the risk um, or making sure that they prepare for things uh, broadly. Uh, making sure that they have response capacity and even there there is amazing recovery planning around the world at the moment making sure that whole societies are ready to um to to recover when things go really wrong um and that that recovery is done as well as possible that multi-pronged attack attack multi-pronged approach um helps make sure that even when we're not as sure about exactly what's going to happen um we end up managing a lot more um, of, of the potential impact. Yeah, that's really good news. That's really good news, especially with experience cost-cutting on so many, uh, so many other areas. But I'm glad that there is a lot of happening in this area of protection, looking ahead and planning and all that. That's really, really op- makes me optimistic. Yeah, I think, um, I think it's internationally and when people are collaborating internationally, it's, um, it's been amazing to see. Um, just the number of different collaborations and, and the, the, the brilliant uh, case studies of success, to be honest. Yeah. That's wonderful. That is really, that's really wonderful. Um, staying with the positive aspect of the rain, 
we mentioned rain before in episode number four. Believe it or not, in episode number four, we talked, uh, my guests and I talked about dance. And the rain came in a context of a popular song that describes, describes the sound of the rain on roof as music. It inspired that particular, that particular singer to describe it that way. It's a beautiful song called Musica E by Aros Ramazzotti. Hmm. How about you? You research disasters, but does rain inspire you? You know, the thing that really inspires me about rain um, is, is this thing called my, my meteorologist friends tell me that it's called scavenging. So it's when we have the rain comes through an area that might have a, quite, a, quite a high degree of air contamination. Um, and then it just it moves through and it catches these particles on its way through. And then even during the rain, you can just feel that the era has changed. And after the rain, you're, you're looking at a completely different landscape um, and moving out to that and just, and just breathing that air in um, after the, the scavenging um, has happened. For me, it's not even metaphorical. It's just a very tangible thing that inspires me every time. I, I really love it. Yeah, me too. I love the smell after the rain. Uh, I, it's just so, so earthy, so, <laughs> so grounding somehow. Um, I don't know, you feel like really part of the ecosystem because you're breathing into your lungs and it is, it is truly beautiful. Oh, it is. And, and you, you, it's almost like you can smell so many different things. You can, you can smell the grass. Can smell it. if you walk, walk past particular flowers, you don't have to get as close to smell them anymore. <laughs> it's smell true. Trees. It's it's amazing, you know. I, I mean, it makes a lot of sense if we look at what smell is and like little particles coming in. Um, but it's uh, I, I I don't think that the you know even if we look at the, at the chemistry of that and sort of um, some of the physics, it doesn't make it any less beautiful. I think it's just it's amazing. Yeah. That's true. That is so true. So well said. It doesn't make it down. Yeah, that is so true. Yeah, it is a, a true miracle, actually, what, uh, what happens. And there's so many aspects, you know, when it's, then the sun comes and the reflection on the droplets and all that. I could go on that um, mm. for a long time. That my writer, the writer in me comes, comes through. Mm. You coming from New Zealand, which has a very deep and old culture, the Maori culture. We, it's a topic in one episode later in a different context. How can we take that wisdom that is available to us and implement it into our work? Is there a place for that in your work? Yeah, well, I, I should probably refer to Aotearoa New Zealand. That's, uh, that's, that's a beautiful name for the country, which it uh, is. pays to the indigenous culture and and you know, and you know, the beautiful name of the, the land of the long white cloud. Um, something that I found really interesting with that in, in um, disaster research is in the aftermath of the, the Canterbury earthquakes, um, going back a, a decade ago now. Um, I can remember working with indigenous researchers and trying to make sure that we, we set up a big project to document exactly what had happened um, because. Uh, the, the, the second Canterbury earthquake, um, and, and I could be wrong, in, in February 2011, was immensely destructive um, to, to, to the city of Christchurch. 
Um, yes, and the, the infrastructure damage was was much more extensive, I think, than people could imagine um, because of the direction and the velocity of the thrust, et cetera. But another thing that was really surprising following that was um, the way that a lot of the indigenous infrastructure was intact. It's fully intact. Fascinating. Um, there, were, there was liquefaction. There were all these things going on, but you could move around um, the city and the outskirts and have these massive meeting houses and whole complexes that were completely intact and functional and providing services to, to the surrounding community. Um, and and it, was, it was really fantastic, you know, to, to, to work with making sure that we could actually get a project together and document how um, Indigenous peoples in, in that part of the world, they, they already knew pretty much where not to build. Um, it was just... They, they, they had this, it was, um, it was just part of their culture where we build here, we don't build there. Um, and that, that really worked out for them. And it was uh, great that it was able to be documented um, primarily by, by a lady called Christine Kenny, um, Professor oh, Christine Kenny in, in New Zealand. And she's done some great work on that, which has since become famous all around the world. Yeah. It is so important to know. We, we had an episode on architecture as well. This is so important to integrate in all other parts of city planning, architecture, so many on so many areas. That's that is such an important insight. Well, I think it's that thing about time spans. You know, some indigenous people have, have been there for that many more hundreds of years. Exactly. Um, and so, of course, their, their knowledge and their, their kind of cultural technologies for, for dealing with these kind of hazards um, are built up with a much longer time frame in mind, um, we could call it a longer data set, but I think it's more than that. It's also a, um, different ways of thinking, different ways of, of, of recording what is important and making sure that we're, that they still have those practices happening as well, which are more connected to the longer, the longer term. Um, I wouldn't say that's, I wouldn't say that's universal because there are many different kinds of indigenous cultures around the world. Um, and, and I just don't know, but I can say that I've, I've really enjoyed working with, with Maori. Uh, Tangata Whenua in Aotearoa, New Zealand, um, and seeing this, seeing this really work out. Yes, exactly. This is um, a little bit also what I observe. I, I, I'm not a researcher in this area by, by all means, but uh, for us, because at the center of circle economies to understand nature again, and we are so detached from it. So we, of course, have to look at what our indigenous people saying about nature and take mm -hmm. that knowledge. And it's also kind of... is being part of an ecosystem and not just making a decision for us, but by understanding the impact of our decisions on future generations. I think this is one of the important things that we have to integrate, that it's just, you know, it's not a snapshot. Oh, we are, while we are here, we make all these decisions for the next few years or for the next decade. It's for generations to come. Yes, absolutely. So I'm assured, Thomas, that after today, my listeners will really enjoy hearing more or getting in touch with you, hearing more about your work, your research. Where can they find you? Yeah, I think um, probably the, the, some of the best places to find me is on Google Scholar. Um, I'm up there under just Thomas with an H, uh, J, Huggins, Huggins with a U, uh, not to confuse with, with Thomas J. Higgins. I'm sure they're fantastic, but they're not me. Um, and uh, or you can you can search for me 
by by the same name on on ResearchGate. You'll find me easily on ResearchGate under Thomas J Huggins. Um, and if people really want to get in contact with me, of course they can email me at UIC. But um, I really enjoy still uh, while it's around. I enjoy LinkedIn. Um, you know, and you can find me on LinkedIn just by searching Thomas Huggins and then with um, United International College. I mean, mm-hmm. definitely find me on, on LinkedIn. And, um, and I'd, I'd really look forward to being in contact with any listener that would like to collaborate or, or uh, you know, talk about, talk about this in, in a little bit more detail. LinkedIn, I've found, is a great way to do it. Thank I think you so we're much on LinkedIn. Work. I think we're, we're LinkedIn, you, you and I. I'm pretty sure we're on LinkedIn. Yes, we are LinkedIn, LinkedIn. Yes, we are. We're LinkedIn, we are. LinkedIn. Right. <laughs> we are, we are. Yes. Thank you so much for your work, first of all, Thomas, and thank you for joining today. Thank you for your insights. Thank you very much for the opportunity. It's, it's a genuine pleasure. Glad to hear that. The listeners, this concludes today's conversation with Mother Earth. In future, I hope you will see every single droplet of rain for what it is, a source of life. Next week, we will talk about New Zealand again, but also Hawaii and Fiji and few more beautiful places. And we will go under your skin. Stay tuned.